Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the EcoVibes podcast, where we have interactive conversations on environmental topics with people from across the world. I'm your host, Kadisha Stewart, and this is the Caribbean Ocean Perspective series brought to you by Sustainable Ocean Alliance. Joining me today is Dr. Kimberly Baldwin, marine ecologist working in Barbados, and today we're going to be talking about geospatial tools and information technology for marine conservation, especially in the Caribbean. So welcome, Kimberly. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks very much. I'm really excited to be here and talk with you today. Yeah, so guys, a little backstory. So I would have put out a call for content for a magazine that's also part of this project, you know, and Kimberly was so ready to send me pictures and content and drone footage, etc. And I was obviously very excited to receive it. And after a while, I was like, you know what, this is a very interesting space. I think we should have a conversation about this and hopefully inspire some um, new leaders of ocean warriors in the Caribbean uh, that could get into this field because it's very interesting. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. So Kimberly, I would love for you to give us a little bio and, you know, so people can know why you're an expert in this field and just a little idea of what sparked your interest. Yeah. Um, thanks. So yeah, my name's um, well, Kimberly Baldwin, but most people know me as Kim. So you can call me Kim in this interview. Um, okay. Yeah. And so I um, I was born and raised in California, and I moved to the Caribbean to Barbados actually to do my master well, I, before my masters in the year 2000. And I worked in the Turks and Caicos um, Islands, and I did field research as a fisheries biologist working with conch and lobster. And from there, I got a full scholarship to come down to UWI Cave Hill mm-hmm. campus and do my master's degree working at, uh, I mean, at CERMES, the Center for Environmental Studies and Resource Management here in Barbados. Um, as part of that scholarship, I had to work for the department in exchange for the scholarship. So I started by um, doing, which was my specialty at the time, which was um, reef mapping and doing reef surveys and fish counts, fish surveys, environmental impact assessment. So I did my master's at CERMES, and I also worked uh, approximately one day a week for the department doing these reef surveys. So that's how I got to Barbados way back then. I did my master's in coastal and marine resource management at Ceremies, and I focused on um, fisheries and working with fish pots in Barbados and alternative fish designs. As part of that, um, I started also working on socioeconomic aspects of the pot fishery and started going out working with the fishermen to understand their livelihoods and social and economic um, dynamics. And as part of that, I really got intrigued by local knowledge and mm-hmm. how much knowledge we all know, um, people that work or live in the Caribbean know that the people working in the sea have a lot. They might not be highly educated in terms of schooling, but their practical day-to-day knowledge of the sea was yeah. huge and vast. And I always felt that there was this disconnect and working on that project made me realize we should be mapping, even though we might not have and my problem as a researcher was we didn't have a lot of funds to do all the conventional science we needed. But these guys knew a lot of information about where the you know fish were breeding and you know the nursery grounds and some of the problems. And so that really piqued my interest into um, participatory research and getting into local knowledge and incorporating local knowledge and in mapping and monitoring. 
Mm-hmm. So um, from there, I would continue to work for the department after my master's doing environmental impact assessments and really got into the surveys and data collection and more conventional green biology, let's say, <laughs> science. Um, but I still always had that love for the local knowledge. So I ended up doing a PhD um, in the Grenadines with under the university at Ceremonies but together with an NGO called the Sustainable Grenadines Project. That was before they were an NGO. They started as a project of ceremonies. And so as part of that NGOs, when they kicked off, they realized that they needed a marine geodatabase and they wanted a GIS database mapping all the habitats, all the resources and all the the livelihoods that were occurring in the Grenadines. And we had very limited funds. Um, little bits and pieces had been done across the, t- it was transboundary too. So there's two countries, Grenada and St. Vincent, which comprise the Grenadines Island. So they wanted this marine mapping database. And I was interested in the project, but I felt that we went under the, tr- the capacity that we had in terms of information and finances and technology. Right. We needed to, to think wider than just conventional science, which is where I came up with the idea for my PhD to focus on what my passion had started on that journey 20 something years ago, which is in <laughs> participatory mapping. So mm-hmm. I said to Susquehanna and the university, I will do this PhD. I will create this transboundary marine database using all the conventional techniques and mapping methods, but I want to incorporate participatory mapping and local knowledge. So that's sort of where I got my kickoff into that whole aspects of this more holistic mapping. And that project, my PhD in the building of that database took six years and over a thousand wow. people across all inhabited islands and the mainlands of St. Vincent and the Grenadines and Grenada participated. And that marine geodatabase comprised of like 60 or, or 68 different layers of information. So layers are like where are the reefs located, where are the sea turtle nesting grounds, where are the anchorages, so all the marine habitats, resources, the livelihood, quantifying how much space, I mean, how many dive shops we had, how many fishermen we had. Nobody had gone and systematically collected this information on just the Grenadine Island. So I did that, and we collected all this information, and then I collected the conventional science and the local knowledge, and my PhD cross-validated the two and said, mm-hmm. You know, how accurate is local knowledge? So we did a lot of, and I have publications on this, how, you know, if you build, first of all, we realized you had to build the partnerships and get the social connections with people. You had to come down to the ground level of the fishermen or the dye shops or the ships and be able to talk on their language. But then they actually, once they understood what you were doing and you built the trust, they had mm-hmm. very useful knowledge. And my PhD showed most times it was above 90% accurate. Let's say where they said where the, uh, nursery grounds were, or where reefs or seagrass was, and when we went out and ground truth, it, which means we went out diving, we right. found it was really knowledgeable. So it was very empowering for all participants. It was a public access. Again, Google Earth had just come out at that time, so it was a public access uh, map that was available with over 300 underwater videos, pictures, images that were georeferenced or tagged across the Grenadine, so kids could click on the little reef outside their island and see the footage we took and they could see you know what the scientists called the habitat versus what the fishermen called so local names were in this map historical and cultural sites were in this map so it was mm-hmm. a great community map that was built over six years across a thousand people 
is publicly accessible and available via Google Earth as well as ArcGIS. So that was a really exciting um, project. And then through Susgrin, we got uh, funding to create a transboundary marine spatial plan for the two countries. So because we had all the data and information, mm-hmm. and, and like I said, we had all these layers of information. And what we found was, I think it was over 60% of it was based off local knowledge. And a lot of that local knowledge is information that there's no way we could have even gotten from science. Yeah. Uh, because it, it's, it's community knowledge. They could, you know, there's certain things that, you know, even if you did a, a reef survey, you're not <laughs> going to know what the social problems and the economic issues or, you know, when the reef, when this storm comes, what's affected where and how. So mm-hmm. we found this was a great database, so much so we got funding to do a marine zoning design, the Grenadines did. And we did that um, over a two-year period after my PhD finished. And so that was great. We had all this data, all this great information, um, and it was exciting. But what I found was that people that I wanted to use the data, um, the governments, community groups, the NGOs, fishermen, they didn't have the technological skills. Maybe they could view a picture or a map, but they didn't have the the, the tech skills Mm -hmm. to actually use it in the ways they wanted to use it to represent their interests or let's say to debate. Like many community groups, I had to come and help them. Um, I know in Kanawan, they were trying to do a development and we, ha- we use that database to show how many livelihoods would be um, if they, you know, dredge this bay, how many livelihoods mm-hmm. would be affected, how many turtle grounds, you know. And so what I realized, they could get the information, but I had to still assist. And the more I kept working on marine projects over the next few years, I kept realizing, you know, all these scientists get so frustrated that governments, communities... Uh, people in the Caribbean aren't using the data. And I realized we weren't taking the time as scientists to train them and teach them how to use technology. But then I realized that, you know, it took me, and this took me several years. I'm I'm condensing this story. (laughs) And then I realized, you know, a lot of this GIS is very difficult to use and the learning curve is very hard to use these spatial analysis modeling tools. So, you know, tech and, and computer advances keep proceeding, proceeding, proceeding. And I realized, you know, my focus needs to be on using a Caribbean, I call them Caribbean relevant IT tools. So it's yeah. trying to find, instead of using ArcGIS, using Google Earth. Because you could train somebody in a couple of days how to use Google Earth and how to access or how to, you know, get a location out of Google Earth. Whereas GIS, I, I was teaching at the university GIS and it would take my students a semester and they still weren't that good. And these are master's students. So, you know, you're not going to be able to go in to teach, um, you know, a, a fisher or a farmer who mm-hmm. at that point didn't even have a smartphone, how to use an advanced computing program. So then I started really focusing on trying to find simple, easy to use tools that were available off the shelf tools, IT tools that were maybe being developed for other industries. Um, for construction or for agriculture or, you know, citizen science apps to map, you know, I, I don't know, broken street poles. Um, and how could we use these tools that w- could 
effectively for environmental management, but also trying to find tools that would work for the capacity of the Caribbean, which is financial limitations. We also had internet and data limitations. And then, you know, the hardware, you know, how fast is your computer? Do you have a smartphone? I mean, at this point in time, nobody had smartphones. So, you know, I've I've grown over the last 20 years um, in the region with the technology, but now it's come to a point where there's a lot of, and that's what my, my, I guess I'm leading into to the next thing. <laughs> I've ended up developing my own consulting company, which really mm-hmm. specializes in IT tech and mapping and monitoring tools, but the training and capacity skills building that is so desperately needed and wanted by many um, groups, whether they're larger organizations like the University of the West Indies or small groups such as Beta Sea Turtle Project or in Grenada, I trained a fishing cooperative. Um, how to use tech and marine tools to map and monitor the environment. Wow. First of all, there's so much, like everything that you just said, I'm trying to process, but I love, I love all of it and stuff. But one thing that Slow I me down I speak, I speak very quickly. <laughs> no, uh, no, 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 no. It's fine. It's fine. One thing that I definitely have to comment on is the fact that GIS is my enemy, public enemy number one. I did it at undergrad at University of the West Indies, but in St. Augustine because my degree is in geography and sustainable okay. development. And then I did it in at master's level at Kingston University in London. And when I found that I had to do GIS, I was like, oh my God, not again. It's haunting me. And like you said, it took your students a whole semester and some of them still get didn't get it. It took me like two years and I still don't get it. I could do and the basics. <laughs> I mean, I'm a self-taught GIS person. Um, my PhD required oh. GIS and, 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 and there was no GIS lecture at Ceremies. So I had to learn online and by implementing a project and actually that is the best way to learn GIS is having a real project where you have to go through the help yeah. and you have to struggle and I make ask any of my students I've taught trained hundreds of them around the Caribbean I've been <laughs> GIS for over 10 years at Cave Hill uh, but you know they they struggle uh, but it, it, I make them struggle because it's not always just this turnkey solution like it seems like when you do the online But yeah, and GIS has gotten much easier. And so now I've really focused on tools, you know, and and, um, that that don't, because like (laughs) you were probably like me, I'm a a marine biologist. I don't want to be that computer person in a dark room figuring out the codes, you know. I want a tool that's simple, easy to use, that gets me the answer I need. And I think the thing that you need to realize in collecting data and information is uh, on the scale that you need it to be. You know, sometimes right. scientists get so down the rabbit hole, they need this fine, really high resolution, super good data. And if it's for general management purposes, for example, a reef, a lot of times government just wants to know where's there a reef and where is there not to make a decision yeah. about budget. They don't care if there's 25 Simple different species yeah. or about the rugosity or, you know, they want to know the basics. So again, it's, it's understanding what data do you need at what scale, because as you get higher, let's say, resolution or better data, it's exponentially more expensive, as well as creating that type of information. It it increases in cost. So it's really figuring out first, doing a good needs assessment and making an idea of what do you need. And that's really what I help people do, is identify what application, what's the scale or level of data they need, and then how do they get there? 
tools do they need? What training do they need? What information needs to be produced? Everything from templates of how to manage data, how to create useful reports in PDFs. Who's your audience? Like you were saying, mm-hmm. some audiences might just be intrigued by a picture. If it's scientists, they might want the hard data. But it's really, yeah. you know, picking your picking your battles and taking <laughs> the resources you have and investing them correctly. Yeah, I feel like I need to sign up for some of this training that you're offering. (laughs) But your PhD sounds so exciting. And I could just imagine, you know, that level of data that you would have collected and how important that is. All right. Your team. I have to get everybody. No, the whole communities, the government, the NGO. I mean, I really can't say it's me. I was just the puppeteer in the background coordinating the people like I hope and most of my people in the Grenadines consider it our database because right. it, yeah. it was such a collaborative effort and I think that's the beauty of participatory GIS or participatory mapping is it should be owned by right. everybody that contributed yeah. that's why I'm all about this open access public access sharing of information you know um which again, there's a lot of challenges in the Caribbean when it comes to data access. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, don't I know? Which is why I went <laughs> down that um, public or because participatory GIS has also got un- underlying governance and ethical principles as well. It's about mm-hmm. empowerment. It's about um, you know transparency, inclusiveness, access. You know, so there's a lot of really good. Uh, you know, my soul principles when it comes to working with <laughs> communities that are included in that. Yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, and, and moving forward and now working with drones and that type of ma- mapping technology as well. There's a lot of privacy and other issues that really need to be considered when you're dealing with local knowledge to make sure the people that are giving you information is not used against them or not used in incorrect ways. So that is the one downside of engaging people in local communities is making sure that the information is used appropriately. Yeah, I love that you use the word empowerment because sometimes we have, um, it's not to call out scientists and stuff, but sometimes we have a lot of scientists or a lot of people that are doing all these amazing work and they go in and they're like, yeah, this is what you need to do. This is that, etc. And they kind of... Yeah. They touch on local knowledge, but they don't really include it or give it the respect that it deserves. And, you know, it's kind of looked down upon, et cetera. But when you have everybody involved in the project or in the work and stuff, then everybody cares. And then, you know, the project becomes 10 times more successful because everybody's empowered and everybody felt like they contributed to something meaningful and part of the change. Yeah. And that's really my approach. Um, you know, when I work with funding agencies before I take on a project and, you know, you're working with a grant person, you know, I think it's really important that the approach that I take is exactly that. I am not the person to make the decisions. And what I tell them is, let's say we're doing marine spatial planning or a zoning design where we need to allocate, let's say, a protected area. It's really got to be up to the community because I can't speak for all the islands. I can speak for a lot of the Eastern Caribbean that I work for, though. But there is a, a little to no enforcement. So if the community does not have, especially in small islands like the Grenadines, Beckway, Union mm-hmm. Island, Myro, you know, if the community is not buying into the solution, they are not going to 
abide by the laws. So by engaging people and getting them to come up with solutions, maybe it's only solving, let's say, 20% of the conservation problem. But if it's actually effective, it is so much better than a lot of these paper marine zoning plans or paper laws and legislations that are out there that they might mm-hmm. look great on terms of international checklists. <laughs> in terms right. of what I want to do, which is effective conservation, you know, and then as people realize, and I've seen this in Jamaica, I've seen this in other islands I've worked in, you start small, they see, okay, this little area is working. And then when you come back and all these kind of plans have to be revisited because things change, sargassum comes in or there's a storm or there's you know, acidification or, you know, there's the restart leaching. So you can't just make a plan and leave it on the shelf, but it's mm-hmm. as you come back and then people are willing to give a little more once they realize hey, it's actually worked. And maybe it hasn't worked. So then the people go back and we say, okay, this is what the science says. This is what our heads say. And this is what we all can give and take trade-offs. So yeah, it's really fun um, and empowering to work with communities. But the hard part is coming up with a good plan and getting it legislated, getting it backed up. Um, Mm -hmm. That's where I think in general, in terms of marine spatial planning, we fall short. Uh, in the Caribbean a lot of times is we, there's a lot of great plans. I've worked with communities and we've developed for certain areas, but then the government needs to take it and legislate it or make a policy and it maybe doesn't happen. So I, I don't yeah. think we're, we've solved the problems yet, but I think the first step is the engagement and the buy-in. And like you're saying, you know, trying it out and hopefully the ball keeps rolling. And I think one of my PhD advisors, Professor Robin Mahan, told me, you know, Kim, this Grenadine, he said when I did the Grenadines thing and the <laughs> zoning plan, he said, you know, don't expect anything to happen for that for 15 to 20 years. And when it does, you won't get any credit, but <laughs> you can look back and smile. And yeah. all these things take time. I mean, even with the Sea Turtle Project in Barbados, um, Professor Julia Horrocks started it, and it took 30 years before turtles really came you know, respected in terms of protection and conservation. So things take time. You just have to keep, I don't focus too much on the results. If I see that my people, my communities um, are learning things and, you know, progress slowly is being made, I, I just pray that the rest falls in place, even if it's not in my lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that, that idea, that concept of hope and being hopeful that you know things will work out in the future if not now but know that somewhere along the line groundwork was laid and hopefully somebody picks up the mantle and turn it to do something great which is really why i love it that what i've been doing recently which is a big push rather than running and doing projects myself which is teaching and training and capacity Mm -hmm. building because um at this right now i've really been focusing on drones we haven't talked about in drone flying and mapping but that is a great skill that can be used for all types of purposes, obviously environmental, many. But mm-hmm. it's really empowering to train fishermen and small NGO groups how to use drones, how to use mapping and monitoring software platforms and smartphone apps to collect really good scientific data and to see them at the end of the week, you know, Excited. never <laughs> touching a drone. To being a proficient pilot, being able to fly, survey, process, and create a 3D map 
of the environment is mm. that's that's the reward to me. You know, wow. so that's why I really get into the, the the training right now and the capacity building because to me, I can I feel rewarded from that. You know, these marine plans, I love doing them, but I get a little frustrated on implementation. <laughs> So I figure, well, even if they can use the drones to hustle some side work or to build their confidence in tech mm-hmm. um, or be able to talk to other people about drones and all the cool ways they're being used rather than all the illicit ways they're being used. Yeah. That to me is, is a good first step. Or probably even drive more innovation in the field, you know, because sometimes people don't know what they're capable of until they actually start doing something. And then lo and behold, somebody gets an idea and then, you know, all of a sudden they take it to 2.0 level. So this, that's, I feel like that's amazing. And I just want to backtrack a little bit because I know we've been trained around the term, but some people might not know what, what we're talking about. But if you could just give a little definition on marine spatial planning. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, when people ask me what, what's marine spatial planning, um, I like to explain it is because most people are very familiar with the concept of land use planning um, mm-hmm. or different zones existing on land. So people are familiar, you know, there's a... Um, on land, there's residential zones or commercial zone. In Barbados, we have a water zone for our water table. We've got anchorage zones. So there are different zones. Um, and most of the lands in many countries have been allocated or zoned for specific purposes. You know, there's national mm-hmm. parks or there's marine protected areas. So marine spatial planning is basically the same concept. We used to think the ocean was this fully abundant resource filled of all kinds of, you know, things for us to exploit and harvest. And it was sort of common open access resource that we could dump trash or harvest and Mm -hmm. it would just disappear (laughs) in the sea. And in the last 20 years, people have really realized, hey, it isn't this garbage can. And we're starting to really see some negative effects. And studies have shown that the majority of marine space use or where people are using the sea is typically close to coastal areas, which would make sense because that's where you can hop in and take a dive or go surfing or go fishing um, Mm -hmm. close to shore. So marine spatial planning is basically the concept of land use planning, but extending it out to sea. And many times in the Caribbean, people talk about a, a ridge to reef approach, which is talking about integrating land use plans with marine use plans so that they can be managed in a more holistic or comprehensive way. So marine mm-hmm. use or marine spatial planning um, is really where what my project, my PhD project um, was essentially. First, you need to collect all the existing data or map what do you have in the area. So we mapped all the habitats. So where are the reefs, where are the seagrasses, where are all the resources? So where are the turtle nesting grounds or where are the fishing sites or the dive sites, because not everywhere in the ocean is equally important for fishing. Not everywhere is a turtle ground. Not everywhere is a dive site. Not every part of the seafloor has oil or gas. So it's Mm -hmm. identifying across all sectors, how are people using the sea, how many livelihoods are there, and then what habitats, and then using GIS or computer program to overlay all the different space uses. And rather than, like, let's say in the Grenadine, we had 70 different data sets of information we wanted to look at across 50 islands. Because there's more than 50 islands in the Grenadine, even though I think it's like nine or a half 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, and so how do you, and then across two countries, how can you as a human actually process that? <laughs> in your kids? Even if you had a bunch of paper maps and you try to overlay them, you know, yeah. I mean, what if you wanted to prioritize like reefs are more important than sandy bottoms, or we want to give a higher value to saving than oil or, you know, the fish or whatever your priorities are. So GIS is a tool where you can overlay everything and you can weight or give ranks to certain priorities. And then it will identify hot spots or where are the best places, let's say, to conserve for conservation or where are the best places to set aside for fishing. You know, and there's other places that can't change, like the shipping lane. <laughs> you know, that's not going to yeah. change. You know, those are international. So we have to work around those. So it just helps you. But it doesn't, I think the great thing about GIS that people need to understand is it's just a tool. It doesn't make the decision for you and it can't. Mm -hmm. It's just a way to kind of take all the bits and pieces and bring it together so you can have a logical conversation that many times backs up with what you know in your head. There's certain places that you're like, okay. And then as a group, all the industries, whether it's, you know, maritime or shipping, fishing, tourism, you know, mm-hmm. recreational people sit down at a table and it's about give and take because what marine spatial planning realizes is it can't be everything and anything goes. You've got to identify what are the most important places for your livelihood. And these are the areas that you sort of are, are, are non-negotiable and which mm-hmm. areas maybe you're willing to give and take a little bit because you're trying to think of the collective, the whole. So, you know, and so it's really about negotiating and bartering, which is why participatory GIS is so important, I believe, in the marine spatial planning processes, because it includes and incorporates in a scientific fashion local knowledge and local priorities. So you can basically identify and include information that in many marine spatial planning, I mean, I'm speaking of the ones I've worked on because people usually bring me in because they want that participatory aspect added to the marine plan. Is, mm-hmm. you know, um, and many times marine spatial plans are done with just the conventional science. And, and you could probably, you're in Trinidad, right? I've worked yeah. in Trinidad. So I know as well the GIS data there is, is limited. You know, so if you just use conventional science, you'd be missing, you'd be making decisions based on large gaps of data. And GIS is just a computer program. So if you put junk in, you're going to get junk out, (laughs) Um, to say it in a very politically correct way. (laughs) Trash in, trash out. So Mm -hmm. it's really important, you know, and and the other thing is just understanding you need the people. You need the people to set the priorities. What's the goal of the plan? Is it maybe sometimes the goal is economic development? Other countries' goal might be tourism. Some goals might be conservation. Maybe it's a mix of all. So you set the goals and then you try to determine, okay, this is what we're willing. And you start with the low hanging fruit, This is easy things. And then maybe you gradually. And I think that's the best thing with implementing things is you start in an incremental fashion to get people to understand a what's happening, but also to get that local buy-in, you know, when yeah. you throw too much at somebody too quickly and it's just, they don't understand or there's pushback. So I'm all about if you build people's capacity as you're implementing, you're going to get success. Right, right. Yeah. No, that seems to be a very, very effective approach. I I would assume that that would be a very effective approach because I'm thinking about myself 
And for example, let's say, because I mentioned GIS was so challenging for me, right? Let's say you just come and it's like, okay, Khadija, this is what we're doing. This is the system. This is this, etc. Okay, go out and, and organize and, you know, you map this area, etc. I would just be like, oh my God, what is happening? But if during the process, you know, we having conversations, we're working it out, you know, okay, this is what we're working on this week. This is what we're figuring out and stuff. Then it becomes so much more, I want to say you're able to handle it more. It's not as overwhelming or as, you know, something that's far beyond your reach in, in your mind and, yeah. some, and stuff. So, yeah, I think and it's great. Yeah, and I think the last important thing on that, you know, and I'm just remembering about the grenadines when we built it, it took us six years to collect all that data. And I exactly. think on top of that, every, and people can, in both countries can attest, they were so sick of me because every time we'd go and collect data, let's say we collected space uses. Then mm -hmm. I'd go back and have community after I mapped it because it was based on local knowledge and people are talking out of their head and then you put it on a map, you have to validate it. So I would mm -hmm. have community meetings to show them and validate. And so we went back and forth. And I think that that was critical in, in getting that yeah. understanding, like you're saying is, is that you go back, and that's the other thing with participatory GIS or even just participatory mapping, is taking that time to validate and get that understanding. And so mm -hmm. it, it took a lot longer and it cost more in terms <laughs> of the time and resources, but I found it was very effective. So when we got to the marine spatial planning, we didn't have to explain to the communities, this is how the data was created, this is where they knew. Uh, yeah. When I would they start showing up, they'd say, what are we mapping this time? You know, <laughs> da, da, da. And so I, I did it incrementally too in terms of the more controversial stuff wasn't mapped until year two or three. So I didn't mm -hmm. ask about dumping or the pollution or the illegal activities until later. Once we had right. the understanding of what we were doing. If I would have started out with where are the illegal activities, I wouldn't have gotten Oh, <laughs> yeah. So again, I think that's a really important. It's just like holding people's hands and building them mm -hmm. slowly and incrementally. This is so exciting. Like, I feel like I, <laughs> wish I, I was in the Grenadines when you were working on this project. No, this is so exciting. <laughs> and it's just a space that sometimes people don't really think about, especially when you're studying like marine ecology or marine biology and stuff like that. You know, you kind of focus heavily on the scientific side. So publications or, you know, all yeah. those more, not discrediting that you know marine spatial uh, planning and stuff is not technical because it definitely is but you know sometimes we have a lot of people studying stuff and then they're just stuck in a lab writing papers doing yeah. experiments etc and not really connecting that information with the people or getting them involved and stuff so like I said this is beyond exciting so I want to know from you right first this yeah, well, I have two questions, but I'll just, I'll break it out. I want to know from you, when did you first pick up a drone? I first picked up a drone in 2015 um, because at that point in time, they really got big on the commercial market. I have two brothers that are photographers. And right. at that point in time, the Nature Conservancy, who had funded a lot of my PhD, so I was already doing mapping and modeling. And we were using, like I mentioned, Google Earth and satellite imagery. But the problem was at that point in time, it was really poor resolution. Like everything was really blurry in the Caribbean. Like it might have been great in the U.S. and 
Europe yeah. and all those places. But when you came to the Caribbean, most of the islands were covered under clouds because of the mountains. And mm-hmm. it was always so expensive. We couldn't afford it. Even for the Grenadines, we were just using bits and pieces of what we could get hand-me-down and Google Earth. And so it was not the best aerial maps we were basing these uh, data sets on. So when I learned about drones, and then I started realizing you could, drones are flying lower than aerial planes and satellites under the clouds, and they were providing high-resolution, centimeter-level resolution mm-hmm. accuracy, 10 times more accurate. And higher resolution than satellite imagery. And I could do that with a $1,500 US drone. I immediately contacted my brothers who were drone fly, or well, they weren't into the drones, they were photographers and started talking to them about drones. And then, funny enough, Nature Conservancy contacted me because they wanted to start, they knew I did a lot of GIS teaching and training for discriminatory mapping. And they contacted me and said they wanted to send a drone expert down to the Caribbean and wanted to train me in three days how to use <laughs> drones and mapping software. And they wanted me to develop a tr- teaching and training curriculum to be a oh. trainer of trainers across the Caribbean. <laughs> and I thought, oh my goodness, because at that point in time, remote sensing and the mm-hmm. cost and the technical expertise, because I was working with the guys, with the pilots that were flying the planes and the algorithm guys that were using, you know, and it would take three months to get this data. For example, I think, well, I won't say the country. One of the countries I was working (laughs) for got aerial images done of their country for their, you know, cadaster land and surveys map and spent 250,000 U.S. dollars to map Mm -hmm. the island. So I knew, and then it took three months of processing um, in a lab from some experts in the U.S. we had to hire. So this was a very expensive, that's why it cost 250,000 U.S. Yeah. Planes. And then I thought, this is too good to be true. You can't be doing this with a DJI drone. Well, at that point, it wasn't a DJI drone. Sorry, we didn't have those. We had more little harder to use drones. But there was software that you could do this photogrammetry, which is the stitching of the drone images to create a map on your laptop. But you had to have a supercomputer. It was $10,000 for this software. But Nature Conservancy was going to buy us an Antigua. That was the country I was doing the, tra- the first training at that point in time, they were going to buy us one license. So I learned it and I assessed it and it was great. And then I realized this is not going to work. You had to be really good at GIS. You had to be really good at tech. The other mm-hmm. guy, Jason Williams, um, he's a GIS person too. He was um, in the department of environment. The two of us, we flew one mangrove. We had to fly it about 15 to 20 times to get it to process and work. And it was just like, it was, tech wasn't quite there and then we couldn't afford it it was great nature conservancy gave him the software but i'm thinking you know across the region this yeah i spent then the next two or three years researching researching all the different drones out there because these are easier drones um all the different software mapping software and so i went on a mission i Mm -hmm. i felt like i did a whole nother phd (laughs) and i tested every drone mapping software, looked at the pros and cons, looked at the rat accuracy, resolutions, the ease of use, could it be done offline? What level of computer did you need? We're doing field tests. We were measuring you know, the volume analysis with buckets to see how accurate. I mean, I really wanted to test all these softwares. And yeah. I found the solutions that really could work. 
And that's what I've developed now that I'm doing um, sargassum monitoring and mapping here in Barbados and launching across the Eastern Caribbean next year, you know, and we're using it. So I've, I've identified, and again, it's different depending on your application. Like I mentioned with data, there's different levels you might need. So, you know, there's different type, not one drone. And people say, oh, what drone and what software do I get? I can't give you that answer. It depends <laughs> on your end use. You know, if mm-hmm. it, um, what scale of resolution are you using it for surveying purposes? Is it for cultural or historical mapping? Is it, you know, just for media, education, mm-hmm. outreach? There's different drones and different software programs that will work. How much money do you have? How good are you at tech? Do you have a GIS person? If you don't, then let's use a software where you can do everything using an online, you know, simple dashboard. If you have a GIS team, we might be, or maybe it's for surveys, like St. Vincent. I just sent them a very, because I sell drones too, and a very expensive drone that does survey grade mapping for doing the cadaster mapping after the volcano. Now that is a very, but that you have to be very good with GIS and you have to have professional surveyors to use that type of equipment. So again, you have to do a good needs assessment, but there are mm-hmm. a lot of great tools. Like I said, I've done trainings of, with fishermen who cannot read or write besides, you know, WhatsApping read or writing. Um, but they can do this. They can plan surveys. They can create data, and they can even create PDF reports of yeah. the maps. Um, you know, so it's it's out there now, and it exists. And what's exciting to me is that every year. It's getting cheaper, easier, and less tech is required. The whole sargassum monitoring program, we started the project in 2018 thinking it's going to have to be a GIS analysis workflow, and now mm-hmm. we've abandoned all GIS. We are using strictly online web maps and dashboard tools uh, mm-hmm. using drone mapping tools. So again, and and it's not 100% there yet, but I know in the next year, it will be. Like this, yeah. as you know, all technologies just get cheaper, <laughs> easier, faster, and more efficient. So it's really been exciting. I think that that's such a great tool for fishermen to have, but there's something that's very important that you touched on. And the fact that you said that you felt like you did a whole next PhD PhD trying to figure out what exactly would work for us. And a lot of times, and this is sometimes why I have problems with um, the definitions for sustainable development and a lot of other different things is that some of these solutions are coming from the global north and they're not considering the Caribbean. And we are a very special, unique region with a lot of different challenges, a lot of different things that are not going into consideration with a lot of these solutions. And, you know, I, for myself, I would like to tell you, thank you for taking the time and energy to figure that out because I know a lot of people would not have done that. And like you said, how Nature Conservancy, you know, reached out to you. They sent you all this great tech, all this great solutions, etc. But then it couldn't be used. And that's a big problem. In it, it could be used by that agency. Is able to use yeah, it. yeah, yeah, but yeah. It wasn't really a solution that could be widely rolled out. Because of, yeah. like you mentioned, all those other challenges, you know, and that's really where my work is focused is really, I always say it's, it's Caribbean appropriate or relevant tools for mm-hmm. the Caribbean. And so <laughs> it's like you, I go to international conferences and even like the drone 
Drone Deploy. I'm a Drones for Good um, partner for a company called Drone Deploy. And so it's like for sargassum and a lot of the problems. So I develop solutions for different conservation problems, um, as well as other industries like utilities. I mean, I'm doing it for agriculture now, too. But I'm researching their tools that were built for construction or built for agriculture. So agriculture is a perfect one. And we're using a plant health tool that they're using that they built specifically for agriculture, the Global North did. But you can actually twist it and use it for sargassum. So that's really where I focus on, too, is I know enough about tech, but I like it because I'm not super techie. So I won't choose the approach (laughs) too hard because my end users are like me. We have other day jobs. We're not computer right. programmers, you know? And so it's like, what, how can we retool existing technology for our purposes? And yeah. that's really where my passion and people that know me lies is, is <laughs> how can we re MacGyver things, um, right. you know? And then like my PhD, when we mapped the underwater reefs, we couldn't un- afford back then an ROV, which is an underwater drone. So we got mm-hmm. this like thousand dollar drop camera and we I worked with fishermen and we built a drop camera with PVC pipes and fishing weight and we threw it off the end of the boat and with a hand rig like they use for fishing. <laughs> and we totally MacGyvered something and I actually won an award at a conference, uh international GIS conference for being able to map reefs using such basic tools. But I think that's what I tell my students at UE, the benefit of being educated at UWI is, is you learn to think out of the box. And when it comes to environmental challenges today, there's not always a turnkey solution. And the more creative we can be in terms of uh, finding existing information technologies, I think the more Mm -hmm. successful we can be. For sure, for sure. And I wanted to know if, in the future, we'll be seeing a course like this at UE. Maybe, maybe, maybe Cavehill for now, but then in the future, spread across the entire region. I know it will be crazy expensive. What are you talking but, about? Um, a drone course? Is that yeah. What you're talking about a participatory mapping or what? I offer all of those. We do offer them through UE, um, Cavehill as well. We actually, I have a drone team there. We have drone services we offer. But I put on training courses like this right now. Um, yeah, they, they exist. So above drone mapping and more specifically, I'm working with another um, researcher, uh, Dr. Patrick McConney on, I don't know if you've ever heard of SOCMON or spatial SOCMON, which is kind of like a GIS approach to the socioeconomic monitoring. But we're developing a participatory, I call it UAS or participatory drone mapping approach. And Mm -hmm. same with the sargassum. We're using it not to just be able to map um, the quantity and volume of sargassum. We're developing a whole, a mapping methodology (laughs) on how to use drone mapping and incorporate, like you're saying, the local knowledge mapping and teaching people to not just map Mm -hmm. sargassum, but what are the problems? What are the issues? How, where should it be cleaned up? So we can also, at the same time as we do the conventional science mapping, work with the community on the ground with drone maps that were flown minutes because the software I'm using stitches in the air without data so that when the drone lands, you have a real-time map on your iPad that you can walk around in the community and annotate and write on the map using your mobile iPad, you know, 
what the problems are right there. So that training course actually will be rolled out um, next year through the SARG ADAPT project of Ceramese, and I believe SARG Track, or it's through the Darwin, Shelly Ann, who spoke on it. Um, I think she's the lead mm-hmm. on that end. So I think it's 10 Caribbean countries. We will be rolling that out to next year. Um, yeah, and, and we, we do offer training classes. Um, myself, I come to islands to, to, to make it easier on those people. But um, mm-hmm. we will be, because Barbados right now, there is a ban on drones in Barbados. We have not opened to the public training classes. But through Ceramese, um, I have students, and we do, I do training through Ceramese of above and under. We do now own, I said back then, because that was way back when, but we do now have <laughs> underwater, and I do train as well using underwater ROV drones as well. So um, if, I mean, we'll talk about social media in a minute, but if anybody's interested yeah. in learning more, I can let you know my site. So you can at least see a lot of these action shots. Um, stuff. I have a Instagram, which is drones, D R O N E S, or bust, B U S T, like Vegas or bust, or hit me at bust. <laughs> drones are so exciting. So, drones or bust um, is my Instagram um, website where I have most things posted. I think also on Facebook, if people are on Facebook. I post a lot of the drone imagery and there's more information. Uh, I I have a, for my company, it's called Marine Spatial Information Solutions, um, which is, are you going to have links to the website as well? Yeah, um, and then my, yeah I was going to say my website's um, Marsis, which is M-A-R-S-I-S dot U-S. So, um, and then hopefully you'll share, you know, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. You can just search Dr. Kimberly Baldwin, you know, and, and I'll share my email and all that. But, um, the Instagram, I mean, that's a perfect example. Um, the Caribbean use of Instagram versus Facebook. So when it comes to outreach in the Caribbean, we are still more on the Facebook page. Where is, mm-hmm. if you think globally, Instagram, TikTok is where it's at, or iMessage is <laughs> most of the global north, whereas down here it's WhatsApp or get out, you know? Um, so it's yeah. really understanding those little things that you don't pick up unless you, you know, you're down here. Yeah. But I, I think it's no, really important to, to be effective. So it's really understanding your audience and, you know, so doing a needs assessment and preliminary. Um, assessment of the, the people is extremely important to the effectiveness of any of the tech that we're talking about. And I think that that's where people go wrong is you start wrong yeah. by not assessing your stakeholders, who everybody is at what level and, and capacity they're at, and then making your plan from there, you know, and not trying to predetermine too much in advance. Yeah, I think all, listen, I've probably been saying this whole, this entire episode, but this is so exciting to me. And I feel like you probably would have inspired somebody else because I know that like here in Trinidad, for example, we have a lot of people that are flying drones, etc., who are into environmental conservation and stuff. And they aren't connecting the dots and understanding how they could use that tool to facilitate change or just to raise awareness and stuff like that so i think that it's so important that we had this conversation and stuff yeah. so 
And you know what I just thought of too? Um, I forgot to mention, I am planning actually, I'm building over like December, January and doing and starting to implement because of COVID begrudgingly, but I'm going to start offering <laughs> drone classes online. I'm going to take a lot of my drone training materials and offer an online platform um, for because I have a lot of different drone classes for mapping and monitoring, for agriculture, for climate change, for fisheries, underwater, above <laughs> water, intro, advanced. So um, I have got so much content and material and COVID was really hard because I was not able to travel around the region. I just did my first training with the Nation National Trust. Um, mm-hmm couple weeks ago which was great but you know besides the Barbados trainings that I've been doing I've got about 10 backed up that I've been grounded on so I've been working with um, like United Nations who's one of my clients right now about if we can't travel how Mm -hmm. do we move this online so that might be something I might be coming up with so if there are people and I hope I did inspire some (laughs) young person to get into science because you I mean, my skills is not smartness or, uh, I mean, I'm kind of organized, um, but it's really (laughs) a people factor. And, you know, not every scientist needs to be a lab coat type, you know, and not every Mm -hmm. scientist can do what I do. You have to be able to work with people um, and be really good with people. But I think it's exciting because kids don't think of a marine biologist flying drones or, you know, a marine biologist doing community mapping or, you know, it's really fun. It's really exciting. And, you know, and especially engaging my other passion is women, women with tech, women with drones, women with the environment. So anyone is definitely, I encourage people to either look at my website, reach out to me, follow me on some platforms, because I'd love to to hear from you and talk more with um, especially young people that are interested. Yeah, and guys, be sure to mention that you came from the Eco Vibes podcast if you do reach (laughs) out (laughs) and stuff. But I feel like I definitely want to start thinking about how I could have you do some sort of training with young people here in Trinidad. I'm always looking at grants and, you know, thinking of new project ideas, etc. So I think that that would definitely, even if it's just to have you speak at a session, you know, I think that would be so inspiring sometimes because, like I said, sometimes people don't know that these things exist or this is something that they could do. So just hearing it firsthand from somebody who's actually doing it might just be enough to be like, oh, okay, all right, this is something maybe I could look into, you know, I might not be doing it right now, but in the future, definitely, I could see myself doing something like this. So, I'm great. Just, just have your email open and don't be surprised if you see yeah. the vibes in your inbox. <laughs> and so, yeah, and I'm always looking for great, in, like if there's recent grads or, or even young people, um, interns, I've got mm-hmm. one that's going to come out right now that I'm going to advertise for soon for content creation. Ooh. So if there's people or young people that are into, you know, um, reels, Instagram, short video clips, I'm really going to be focusing on trying to get somebody to help a bit. So again, that you could be into the environment, but your background might not be. You didn't go to school and do all these, you know, biology, yeah. chemistry <laughs> classes. Maybe you're more creative, you know? And, and you again, I know that I, I could do, take great pictures, but I'm not super creative, you know, Um, (laughs) and that's okay. I can learn the tools and teach them, but, you know, I'm not an artist, Mm -hmm. you know, so I think it's great that 
you don't have to wear, I think that's a good take-home lesson, is you don't have to wear every hat to be a scientist. You find yeah. one thing that you're really good at. I'm good with people, and I love teaching and training. You know, so rather than feeling intimidated about all the things I don't know, focus on the few things you do know, and, you know, you'll you'll succeed. At least that's what I think. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's great advice. And I always, I also, just to add to that, I always tell people, you know, that we all have our skills and we all have our role to play. You know, I can't do what you're doing. You can't do what, I mean, maybe with some years of training, et cetera, but I still wouldn't be at your level. And, you know, you can't do what I'm doing, you know, because we all have our space and our role to play in and there's enough room for everyone. Every, it's like, exactly. That's why I think I got into the teaching and training as, as, as well, as I found that the few people that could do certain tech things were not there. You know how it is. People keep it to themselves because they're worried, they're yeah. scared. Other people, you know, and there's so few people, let's say for drone training, that are actually doing it because the people that are doing drone mapping don't want anyone else to learn how to yeah. do it. And I, to me, that's just so short-sighted. So to me, drones to the world, drones to the Caribbean, <laughs> let's train everybody, especially young people. It's something I think, especially for teenage groups, I always talk to ministers about it. In a matter of mm -hmm. a small grant, you know, you give a kid five grand, they could buy a drone, get the insurance, do the training and start their own company, which is much cheaper than buying a taxi and exactly. a lot more useful moving forward. Yeah. So on that note, Kimberly, well, you said call you Kim. Kim, thanks you so much for joining me. It was such a lovely conversation. I feel like I've learned so much. And like I said, I'm definitely going to reach out to you in the future because this is such an exciting feel. And guys, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to give the EcoVibes podcast some love and share it with your friends and family. Yeah. And follow me on socials as well at EcoVibes. You know, everything would be in the show description notes so don't be worried if you didn't catch an instagram handle right. or email it's all gonna be in the show notes so definitely make it your mission to reach out if this is something that you find is interesting or if you just want to learn more be sure to reach out and like i said this series is brought to you by sustainable ocean alliance we are coming down to the end of the season it's so sad but so exciting at the same time because we've had such great conversations but i will see you guys in the next one so bye everyone and thanks again kim bye bye thank you so much bye everyone thanks for listening <laughs>